Well, we're in the Gospel of Luke again this morning. If you look on page 6 of your bulletin, and this is um, the continuation of a, a series, a sermon series that we began in Luke actually almost two years ago. I don't know if you remember that, two years ago here at the beginning of March that we began in Luke, and we've taken our time with it, of course. We've ventured off into other places along the way, and doing that maybe helps your attention span. I don't know. You know, just every, every week in the same book of the Bible um, maybe can, can shorten your attention span a bit. Here Jesus meets a man who hasn't got much for an attention span. He's distracted by something that seems very pressing and important to him something that seems very immediate to him. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to point the crowd around them to God. And so you young Christians, you little ones who are still among us here this morning, there's a a tricky little detail in this parable. See if you can notice how many characters are there in this parable as we read it. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, that is to the crowd, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us. We know that you are because you promised to meet your people when they gather because you've called us here. Lord, again, we've not called you. You've called us. We've responded to you. And so we've gathered here together in your presence. And we ask that you would move by your spirit in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts, Father, so that we might understand. Help us to understand. Help us to understand and recognize the the beauty of your redemption in Jesus that you have given yourself so that we might have life that you've given your Son so that we might have righteousness. I pray that you would help us to see that, to rejoice in that, and to heed your word appropriately, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Shortly after Mary and I were married, I I think it was after we were married, 22 years ago, here almost soon, um, we went to a concert. I think it was in St. Louis where we lived at the time. And it was an outdoor concert. We were on the lawn, blanket spread, picnic. Everybody else crowded around, strangers. I don't know who the concert was. I don't remember that detail, but I do remember this detail. 
At some point during the concert, Mary pointed off in the distance to a supposedly neon sign that she saw far away, and there was something of it that was of interest. She said, you see that neon sign over there? And, and I looked where she was pointing, and I said, what sign? And she explained to me, there's a sign over there. You, you can't see that. And she, she took off her glasses and gave them to me, and I put them on, and then I could see the sign. My vision isn't exactly what hers is, but... It was similar. It was the first time in my life that I had realized that I was short-sighted, nearsighted. That visual images are in focus for me when they're relatively near. It's not extreme. I can, I can see you people in the back, so don't think that I can't see you. <laughs> but I saw that wave. I saw that Karen Shear. I can see you, but, but visual images for me are much more clear if they're closer than they are if they're if they're distant they become a bit blurry and so I I got my first pair of glasses went to the eye doctor got my first pair of glasses and I I began to to have these revelations I realized that trees are covered in actually individual leaves (laughs) rather than a blur of green blob on top of a brown stick and I began to realize that actually I could actually read road signs at a distance at night And that was comforting, but it was also discomforting, too, because I began to wonder how many other drivers can't see 50 yards ahead of them like I couldn't at the time. It was was very helpful. More figuratively than actual your, your physical vision, you may have heard sometimes of someone referred to as being myopic. That's a good SAT word for you. Myopic, it just means someone who has no foresight. They, not physically so much as, as philosophically. They can't see beyond just the matters that they have at hand today. They have no foresight. Well, here we meet a man who is short-sighted, myopic, perhaps you would say, spiritually short-sighted. He can only see what's in front of his own nose and... Perhaps that reminds us of ourselves at times. Last week we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 that a crowd had gathered around Jesus. They were curious about the the conflict between religious titans of their day. And Jesus had spoken to his disciples in the midst of that crowd. He'd warned them to watch out for certain things that they should fear. But then this man in the crowd, who was evidently close enough to hear because he was close enough to burst through and assert his own concerns, he bursts in and he has something else on his mind. Now this is probably, no it's not probably, it's certainly typical of people listening to a sermon. So I would imagine that that many of you, even already this early into a sermon, have begun to wander in your minds. You're thinking about what you've got to do this afternoon your homework or your assignments, you're thinking about this week or you're thinking about the grocery list, you're thinking about yesterday and how you wished this had happened. You're thinking about something else. I know that. (laughs) That happens all the time. And that's what happened to Jesus here. This man wasn't paying attention and he burst through with his own thing. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jesus must have wondered, Did you not just overhear what I said to my disciples? I mean, I've just spoken to them about what one really should fear. That you should be concerned to avoid the false righteousness of hypocrisy. 
that you should fear the false gods that cannot judge and are not gentle. That you should fear the possibility of a false confession that reveals the true nature of your heart. But you, sir, didn't listen. You can't see far enough ahead to realize what's important. All you can see is what's directly in front of you, and you're afraid of that. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to point out there's something more to fear yourself. You are prone to be short-sighted. So Jesus doesn't hesitate to take on this question. He doesn't hesitate ever to take on any topic, but certainly not this topic about material possessions. It's one of his most frequently addressed topics. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Jesus does speak with some frequency about money, about material things, because our money and our things, whether we have much of it or a little of it, either way, are near and dear to our hearts. And so here Jesus warns that the things in our hands may reveal the short-sightedness of our hearts. There's a threat and a deception and a shock that he works his way through here. I want you to see them. What is the threat of short-sightedness, of spiritual short-sightedness? That threat is this. You will depend on what the world offers in order to gain what only God can provide. You'll depend on what the world offers in order to gain what only God can provide. The man comes and he demands assistance from Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you were to look back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 21 and and elsewhere as well, you would see the law concerning inheritance and families in Israel. And it's stated that the firstborn son is to get a double portion, a double share of his father's estate. That was the law in Israel. And so this man has come concerning that. It was not uncommon for a family to go to a rabbi to settle in a dispute like this. And, and so this could be a younger brother, perhaps. You know, maybe he's only, you know, 10 months younger than his Brother, what do they call them? Irish twins, you know, born as close together as they possibly could be. Maybe he's just nine or ten months younger than his older brother, and they've lived basically as twins all of their lives. And now dad has died, and the estate is split up, and he feels like it's not fair. He gets two, and I get one. Jesus, help me with this. Maybe that's the case. Or or maybe it's the case that his brother's like 10 years older than him, and older brother's never given any regard to younger brother. He's just younger, pestery brother, and so older brother isn't allowing younger brother to have any of the estate. Maybe that's the case. We don't know exactly what it is. But this man, it seems, has been treated unjustly, or so he thinks, and He doesn't really want for Jesus to arbitrate. What he wants for Jesus to do is to call down a verdict. But Jesus smells something more here. He smells a threat, not to himself, but to the human soul. And he refuses the man's request. In fact, he rebukes the man. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? So something of a rebuke to the man. 
So he refuses his request and he turns his attention instead to the threat. And he said to them, the crowd, he said, take care, be on your guard. Now, if you're going to be taking care or even more specifically on your guard, what that means is that you're asking questions. You're asking questions like, who goes there? What is that sound I hear out in the darkness? Show yourself because I know you're there. You're you're asking questions because you realize with a healthy element of suspicion that there's a threat. And what is the threat? Jesus tells us. Be on your guard against all covetousness and all kinds of greed because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The threat of spiritual short-sightedness is that you will depend on what the world offers to gain what only God can provide. And what does the world offer? It offers possessions. It offers material. It offers money. It offers things. And you don't have to be rich in the eyes of the world to recognize this, this threat. J. Walker Smith is, or was, at least an executive in the advertising industry. In 2006, CBS News interviewed him about the advertising industry, just to get some insight into what goes on in his business world. And Smith cited some statistics from the 1970s. He said, in the 1970s, the statistics showed that the average American was exposed to roughly 500 advertisements per day in the 1970s. It would be advertisements on television, of course, or billboards on the, the road, or signs in shop windows on the street, or uh, things in your own pantry, in your, your closet at home. About 500 advertisements per day in the 1970s. But now this, this interview is happening in 2006, and he said, he said now, in 2006, the average American person is exposed to about 5,000 advertisements per day. It had, had gone up by 10 times because of the convenience of media and the way that things developed. Well, now it's 13 years later, and digital marketing experts estimate that the average American person is exposed to upwards of 10,000 advertisements per day. Now, I, I don't know how that is. That seems like a lot to me, but that's what the experts say. But think about it. Every blank space is covered in an advertisement. I mean, not just billboards on the road, but, but buses on the street and parking meters in city centers. And even, for those who play video games, cleverly placed inside video games, there will be advertisements placed there. Or in movies, you, you see, you, in movies you see advertisements. Maybe you just don't know it. It's so subtle. You, you see them. And even entire buildings, the whole wall of a building will be an advertisement. And that's not even to mention the online media, you know, on, on the Internet, the, the pop-up advertisements that come into your face so many times a day. It is everywhere. And, and that's just to be expected, isn't it? Because in this country, what are the major themes of every president's State of the Union address? Every January, whatever president or whatever political party it is, what are the major themes? At least two of them are these, security and prosperity, Right? 
we want to hear, and so the president of whatever party tells us, that the government is protecting and enhancing our ability to acquire things. That's the nature of our culture. And advertisements and politicians, it all comes to you with one simple message. And what is that message? It's this. What you have is not good enough. And do you know why it's so effective when they give you that message? It's effective because it's true. What you have is not good enough. They are right. You were made for what only God can provide. And what is that? Re-entry into the Garden of Eden. That's what it is. That's, that's what you were made for. That's what you truly need. Re-entry, it is into the fulfillment of fellowship with God Himself. It is for that that we strive. It is for that that we achieve. It's for that that we acquire It's actually somewhere deep down in our hearts for that that we covet. That's what we long for. It's why we long for what we don't have when we see it in someone else's possession. What this world offers is a mirage of sorts. It's a a suggestion. It's an image of something greater than this world can ever provide. Oh, make no mistake about it. We do live in a material world and we are material beings gifted by God to enjoy the good that His creation allows and contains. But the threat of spiritual short-sightedness is this. You will depend on what the world offers to gain what only God can provide. And in that effort, you will fail. You will fail because not only is there a threat, there's also a deception. What is the deception of spiritual short-sightedness? It's this. You will ignore what is obvious in order to secure what is fleeting. You'll ignore what's obvious in order to secure what's fleeting. Jesus turns to a parable to explain this. And this parable is interesting. It's unique because it's I think the only monologue parable that Jesus gives. There's one man speaking here, and this is what he says. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, this this man is not evidently a subsistence farmer. He's not just growing tomatoes and carrots and peppers so that his family will have a colorful garnish on the side of their lamb chops. That's not who this man is. He's, He's a farmer who's in business. And he's proposing a good business decision. He's proposing to make a capital investment to protect his valuable assets. And who wouldn't do that? I mean, that's, that's just common sense, isn't it? But he's ignoring something obvious. What is it? What's he ignoring? What was it that brought about this man's good fortune? Notice the detail in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
the land produced. The rains came, the sun shone, the seeds germinated, the cells divided, the leaves grew, the grain sprouted. You know, the man had scattered the seed on the ground, but who made the land to be productive? God had done that. So, you young Christians, what was the the question? How many characters are in this parable? That's the tricky part. There's not just the one in the monologue. There are two characters here, right? God is here as well. And in his short-sightedness, this man completely ignored what was obvious. He gave no mention of the fact that God is the one who brought about the production of his, his land. And, and how do we know that he ignored it? There's a, another detail here that runs throughout the parable that, that could be missed if you're not paying close enough attention to it. This man thinks he has a storage problem, but he doesn't. What he has is an ego problem. Notice, I'll read it to you again with emphasis. Verse 17, And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, he's talking to himself now, You have ample goods laid up for many years. You relax, you eat, you drink, you be Mary, you hear it? Of about 60 words that this man says, 18 of them refer to himself. A third of every word that he says refers to himself, one out of three. Now, do you ever talk this way? Try it. Try going home this afternoon and just talk about, refer to yourself Again and again, once every three words, refer to yourself and see what your friends and your family say to you. That's what this man has done here. This parable is not so much about money as it is about me, myself, and I. That's what it's about. Spiritual short-sightedness can deceive you into missing what is obvious. So don't miss the obvious and think that this gospel lesson is about rich people. The man was already rich. But that's not what it's about. The man with the request and the man who's in the parable seem outwardly at least to be opposite of each other, don't they? I mean, the one who comes to Jesus has too little, or so he thinks, and the one in the parable has too much, it seems. Outwardly, they seem to be opposite. But inwardly, they're the same person. Me, myself, and I. It talks about the rich man becoming richer. It doesn't say anything about the poor man becoming poorer, but they're really the same thing. Whether you have much or little, spiritual short-sightedness will deceive you into ignoring the obvious to secure what is fleeting. And what's fleeting here? Well, his crops, of course, they're perishable goods. It's grain that will rot in his large barns. It's not something that's going to last. And that's just the nature of the consumer desires of a short-sighted heart. Our economy in this country even has developed in such a way as to reinforce this fallen reality. So, so think about it this way. There was a man named Victor Lebeau in the 1950s. He was an economist and a retail analyst and a marketing consultant for 
companies. And in the 1950s, he was observing the pricing competition that was developing among American companies in the market here in this country. And in 1955, he wrote an essay in which he wrote these words. He said, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. We need things to be consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. This was in the 1950s, 60 years ago. In other words, he says, our economy, as he observed it, encourages and exhorts us even to set aside the old and replace it with the new, to tear down our barns and build bigger ones. Fast fashion. The the fashions come and the fashions go from season to season. Get rid of the old fashions, they're out of style. Get the new ones. That's what our economy encourages. But to ignore the obvious of God's provision in order to secure what will never satisfy. Because nothing in this world will satisfy. In fact, even everything in this world, were you able to acquire it, would never satisfy the eternity-shaped needs of the human heart. The man here thinks that he's found the key to his satisfaction, but this man had not read the book of Ecclesiastes, apparently. The writer of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament exposes a, a kind of mysterious trick of our creation at God's hands. That writer tells us this. He says, God has put eternity into man's heart. And yet, God has done it in such a way that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity into your heart. Your your soul, your heart is deeper than you can imagine. It's bigger than you are. It is eternity, and yet you can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Apart from fellowship with God and Jesus Christ, your eternity-shaped heart will clamor about for worldly things that will only fly away. The writer to the Hebrews gives us this gospel word. He wrote, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can say along with the psalmist, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Because God has promised that He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Keep your life free from love of money, from the things that are fleeting and just flying away. Don't be deceived by spiritual short-sightedness because those who are will find that a shock comes along with it as well. What is the shock of spiritual short-sightedness? It's simply this. God himself is not short-sighted. God himself is not short-sighted and What seemed invisible or maybe blurry at best to you in the distance may come upon you more quickly than you think. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Fool, God calls him. You know, in Scripture, 
A fool is a person who disregards God. Psalms 14 and 53 are very similar to each other. Both of them describe this person by saying, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. And so we might assume a fool is an atheist, someone who believes God doesn't exist at all. But the Psalms are more subtle than that. Another Psalm, Psalm 10, suggests that the fool may acknowledge maybe there is a God. But if there is, he's forgotten and he's hidden his face and he'll never see what we do. He won't hold us to account. So what we do doesn't matter. That's the fool. That's the fool of this parable and the fool is wrong this very night your soul is required of you okay that word required is interesting it fits the parable because that word is an economic term it's a business term that jesus uses it's actually the term that describes what happens when a loan has come due it's time to pay back what has been on loan to you and what has been on loan to you but your very life. Not just the things that you have, but the air that you breathe, the blood in your veins. Your very life is on loan to you. And so while this man drew up plans for new storage units, God was at work drawing up paperwork to call in his loan. Your loan is up and all your possessions cannot pay for what is due. Who will pay what you owe? You cannot. Who will pay it? The proverb, the the wisdom of Proverbs 27 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what another day may bring. Isn't that true? Just this week, I learned that uh, the athletic director from my own alma mater, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, the athletic director, longtime athletic director, David Williams, who was the first African-American man to be appointed an athletic director in the Southeastern Conference. It was a very significant thing. He was a widely respected man in the college arena. He was 71 years old. He had just retired a week ago. And... There was a retirement party set for this Friday night, two nights ago, Friday night, to his family and, and hundreds of friends would gather together at Vanderbilt University and celebrate a life well-lived and an impressive career that this man had had. And on Friday morning, he was with his family at a breakfast restaurant in Nashville, and he went into cardiac arrest and he died. You don't know what another day may bring. For these past weeks, I've been in... Uh, at least aware through an email list of a church planter in California. A man I've not met, but I've known of him for years through mutual friends. He's in his 30s. He has a, a wife and four young children. Ten years ago, he had cancer. It went into remission. But over the past year, his cancer has come back strong. He's been in the midst of planting a, a church in California But his cancer has come on hard, and he lays even this morning in a hospital bed in San Diego with liver failure, anticipating death in the weeks to come. Wife and four kids, you do not know what another day will bring. And just two days ago was not just Friday, it was February 8th. Alex and Alicia Dean are not with us this morning. Alex is our youth pastor. They're on vacation because of this, really, so that they can observe it properly. February 8 marked the one-year 
mark since Henry, their precious little boy, did not wake up from his sleep. One year ago, Henry died. The Lord took Henry in his sleep, and that was a grievous time for our whole congregation, but certainly for Alex and Alicia. And I'll never forget at the very memorable funeral of Henry, a celebration of his life, Alex's uncle so poignantly put it like this. He said that when Jesus came for Henry, Henry was not shocked. He was not surprised because he knew Jesus. He knew who he was when he saw him. And it was a warm and loving welcome that Henry experienced. This parable is a sober reminder. Your age doesn't matter. You know, we we tend to take comfort in statistics and maybe I would say presumption, expecting that the older you are, the more likely you are to die on any given day. Death comes close often, doesn't it? But God is not confined by statistics, and he's certainly not confined by presumption. Your life is on loan from him. And when the loan comes due, will you know him? When the loan comes due, who will pay what you owe? And so Jesus concludes, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now understand, this parable, this lesson is not a condemnation of planning for the future. And it's not even a condemnation of of wealth. It's not that. But it is two things. it's an exhortation. It's an exhortation to to the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. It's an exhortation to recognize the grace of the gospel of what God has provided for you in Jesus. Are you rich toward God? Are you rich in generosity according to what you have? But even more, are you rich toward God in faith, in love, in good deeds? So it's an exhortation on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's also a warning. Don't depend on what the world offers in order to gain what only God can provide. And don't ignore what's obvious in order to secure what is only fleeting. And don't be unprepared for tomorrow, lest you should be shocked at God's presence. Your eyes might be weak, but may your soul see clearly that you might be rich toward God in Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we give you praise that you are the one who called us into being. You, in fact, knitted us together in our mother's wombs. And you knew the number of our days before any of them came to pass. And you know the details of our lives, which to us are beyond foresight even. But they are securely in your hands. And so, Father, we trust ourselves to you, and I pray that you would cause us each here in this room today 
more and more to entrust ourselves to you, to recognize the grace you've given to us in Jesus so that we might respond by being rich toward you in the riches of Christ, we pray in his name.